Solar Eclipse Expedition with Clark Muir on episode 329 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky and this podcast is for anybody else who likes going out under the stars. So I'll just read a brief introduction and then we'll get rolling. Clark Muir has been on the show a few times before and is a frequent correspondent of ours. He is past chair of the History Committee of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada and a longtime visual observer and amateur astronomer from Kitchener, Ontario. He has built his own telescopes, including an 8-inch Dobsonian and a replica of Galileo's refractor, which he used to recreate some of Galileo's early observations, such as those of Jupiter's moons. I used to live nearby Clark, and we spent many nights observing under the stars together, so it's always great to catch up on his recent projects. Today, Clark is going to tell us about his recent solar eclipse expedition to observe the April 20th solar eclipse off the coast of Australia. Welcome back to the show, Clark. Great to have you. Yeah, thanks, Chris. And hello, Shane. Yeah, uh, good Good to talk to you again, Clark. And I'm, I'm super excited for this discussion. Um, for, for just the listener's sake, Clark, um, uh, I guess you drafted a bit of an essay on your experience here with the eclipse. And as I was reading it, and I know we'll get into the details uh, it it really triggered some memories for me from the 2017 eclipse and just the way you used words to explain your experience here as well as from uh, 2017 uh, I, I just thought were was so elegant and and so accurate so uh, I, I love having these conversations about eclipses because the most interesting thing at this point to me is it's hard to put words to them to really describe their magic and intrigue. Yeah, they are and. and uh... The one I just saw in Australia was my second. I was also uh, at the 2017 eclipse. Uh, I was in the state of Nebraska, and we did have clear skies. And Chris, I note to you, uh, by coincidence, in the same campground as I was staying, it was your friend uh, Dave Chapman. Oh. And uh, uh, also, I didn't know it at the time, but uh, the late Terrence Dickinson was always there, was also oh. there. Oh, and that's cool. So that was, uh, I think for, I didn't know him well, but for those that did, it was for quite a few people. That was the last time they saw him publicly. So yeah, it was my second eclipse or this, this was my second eclipse and it's hard not to compare the two. Uh, it's, it's, it's irresistible. So you're always comparing uh, my first one to my second one. And I'll probably do that a little bit tonight. Cool. Well, yeah, I'm looking really looking forward to this uh, as well, and I guess maybe a good place to start might be this is a this is really very much a an expedition. You know, getting from Canada to Australia is a bit of a journey in itself, and then coordinating to get on a cruise ship and get off the coast and to get under that narrow path of totality. How long did it take you to plan the trip? Like, when did you start planning this one to to yeah. go and and see? Well, uh, it was probably, I thought about it uh, in 14 to 16 months ago. So let's say the new year, 2022. Mm -hmm. And the reason for this, of course, the pandemic was on and it's still uh, very unpredictable and variable uh, and you go into different countries. So what happened is I found the uh, cruise ship uh, offered by the cruise line direct. And it seemed to be the easiest way to go. Simply getting to this remote location in Western Australia 
by renting cars and, and hotels and trying to get food seemed very problematic because of, of the pandemic, adding predict unpredictability to that. So the cruise line allowed us to book a cabin or a stateroom. The deposit was only $1. So we had several months to decide. And if we decided we didn't want to go, we could just forfeit the dollar. So that made it much more comfortable for us to book the room. Once August came, that was August 2022, it looked like things were settling down. So we put down the, uh, the deadline, the proper deposit, and then booked air, air tickets and whatnot. What we decided to do was make it a, a long trip. So we flew from Toronto via Hong Kong to Brisbane. We spent a few nights in Brisbane, flew to Sydney, and then spent five nights in Sydney, flew to Alice Springs, and then we rented a car and drove through the outback, wow. uh, going to places like Uluru, which was formerly Ayers Rock, the yeah. mining town of Cooper Pedy. Oh, wow. Dropping the car off in Adelaide, Australia, and then flying to Perth. A couple of nights there, the cruise five days back to Perth and flew home. So uh, that's a lot of planning. Yeah. And maybe I should say this to the listeners, and Shane alluded to it, is that you you sort of wrote us this, or you, you've written up this report. I think you're going to publish it or something. And it's uh, very captivating, like Shane was saying, the, the mm-hmm. words that you've selected. So I kind of don't want to take away from that. So maybe I should just let you kind of run with it a little bit here and and sort of give us that narrative. Well, sure. But uh, no, the eclipse was at the end of the... Uh of this trip, my, my wife uh, went with me. She was with me in Nebraska and quite was captivated by the eclipse experience as well. So the rest of the trip, uh, as you can imagine, didn't deal with a lot of astronomy in, in the big cities, of course. So um, there was no intention to bring a spotting scope or, or tripods or any of that stuff. So what I ended up doing was, was purchasing a pair of 10 by 42 binoculars. Uh, primarily, I thought the 10 would be nicer for getting into the the deep sky in the southern hemisphere, uh, and the 42s were much more compact. So they turned out to be, I think, a, a reasonably good choice. So uh, as you can appreciate, any, any astro- astronomical equipment I brought while I was in uh, Brisbane and Sydney are just boat anchors. I can't use them for deep sky stuff. Now, we did do some history. I visited the Sydney Observatory and things like that. Um, but the real fun started as far as the, the binoculars were concerned when we went to Alice Springs. We spent the night there and then drove out to uh, Ayers Rock or Uluru. And of course, uh, without the dark skies, it's a fabulous place. It's a different landscape. And when it was dark, I finally did manage to get to an excellent site. As I mentioned, we were renting a car. And the one thing they tell you not to do in Australia is is drive your car at night and on gravel roads. Uh, you just don't do it, especially there. And being a foreigner, that I took that advice, which meant I couldn't leave the village in um, Uluru. There was a lot of hotels and restaurants and other facilities. But I did manage to climb up hill to get to uh, away from as much of the local light as as possible. And and it was fantastic, especially if you, if you're from the northern hemisphere. And uh, can't get down there much, so we had a, I had a just by myself for about forty five minutes. Keep in mind, uh, I'm going to the eclipse, which is new moon, so I'm in the outback earlier, which means there's a moon. So uh, it was nice and dark until the moon rise, until the moon rise, maybe ten o'clock for argument's sake. 
So I'd spend about 45 minutes just looking at these southern um, southern hemisphere delights. And so it was uh, things like the jewel box in Crux, uh, the Colsacks nearby, the Ada Carina. There's a, I didn't know what it was called, the Lambda Centauri Nebula, the Southern Pleiades, and then the two giant clusters, 47 Tacana and Omega Centauri. So all of this in one night, and then you got the the large Magellanic cloud and the, the small Magellanic cloud. And so these are among, if all of these are showstoppers, if they were in the Northern Hemisphere. So, so to see them all quickly in, in small binoculars was wonderful. Yeah. Uh, it was just fabulous. So um, then we went down to Cooper Pedy, and I did that again. Cooper Pedy is a mining town. Bigger city, but I was able to you get up the uh, up high and away from the lights, and I continued to do those kinds of observations. Even looked at if you recall, the Venus was near the Pleiades mm-hmm. uh, last month, and uh, from the orientation, the Pleiades were setting, and Venus was directly above it, which was different than it would look as it uh, as it was setting. It was different than it would look up here in Canada. So I continued using the binoculars in that scale. In, in that way, uh, trying to absorb, trying to get a uh, feel for what the southern sky looks like as far as orientation goes. So I started to look in the deep south near the um, near the south celestial pole area just to see stars that you'll never see, even from Florida or, or from the equators. So, yeah. Uh, I tried to do as, uh, quite a bit of that kind of thing. Um. Then, uh, as far as that goes, we, we, we flew to uh, Perth a couple of days ahead just to make sure there was no flight delays. Um, and then we, we stuck around the, the port town of Fremantle, which is a wonderful place. That's where the cruise ship left. It's really half an hour outside of Perth. And the cruise was designed to be a, a five-night trip with no stops. It just went to, uh, it just went to the path of the eclipse and came home. If you're Australians, might will know the town of Exmouth or Exmouth, and that's where you had to be for totality. It's just too hard to get there, and uh, so the ship decided to to sail there. And if if it was going to be clear there, that's where they would go, and that's ultimately where they went. So, among the the tour groups that were there was Sky and Telescope. And they're, they're obviously a large uh, magazine and it do a lot of tours. And they had, I think, about a, crew, a group of about 140. And you could have booked this cruise through them and they would do a, a side five-day tour as well of astronomical sites in Australia before the trip. And mm-hmm. But I had booked through the, the cruise line, the P&O Australia cruise line before I even knew there was a sky and tell trip anyways. And so when we, when we got on board, there was, there was probably about 2000 passengers and it turned out through uh, that I learned later that about three quarters of the passengers were Australian and one quarter were international, including myself. And uh, it, it seemed likely that those who were flying, uh, those that were on the cruise uh, from foreign countries were hardcore or very interested uh, 
eclipse chasers, whereas the Australians, it was mixed. It also happened to coincide with the Australian two-week uh, school break. So uh, I believe most states, if not all of them, had the two-week school break. So that meant that there was a surprising number of families on board, and not just families, but children as you know toddlers and even babies so and um so it was a nice five-day trip to just uh stay to travel and, and do something different and so the mix of with the australians were primarily people that i met were people who were interested in eclipses but had never seen one and i learned it turns out that quite a few of them were from perth and uh, the one gentleman i talked to said uh, he looked at going to Exmouth and just said, no, this is silly. It's cheaper and easier just to do the cruise. So it's felt like at least I'd made the right choice as far as, as planning that was concerned. Uh, the Sky and Telescope worked with a group called the Australian, the Astronomical Society of Australia. And they they worked with them uh, to provide talks for all of the guests. And some of them were um, about the history of astronomy. Others were simply telling us what to expect during the eclipse. And other topics, like I believe they did the, the LIGO discovery back in uh, 2017 when the, they detected the, the two neutron stars colliding. So those were various talks. And during one of the talks, they were... As I mentioned, they, they were going to tell us what to expect during the eclipse. And this I didn't know, but they planned to, to uh, take the ship just off the coast of Australia near Exmouth, around into the bay and anchor the ship. And, and that's exactly what they did. So that meant that um, they, the ship would be very stable relative to other crews, other uh, cruise ship eclipse expeditions. So, uh, and the other thing uh, is, I talk to people, they're all excited and they're all different um, uh, levels of experience with eclipses. So, you, you talk to a lot of people, as you might imagine. One of the people working for Sky and Tell was uh, the eclipse chaser Fred Espinick. Okay. He's one of the, probably the most famous. Uh, eclipse expert in the world so if he's on board it sounds like you're going to have a, a, a good chance of seeing totality so um so the observed at sea the sky and telescope group had managed to get the 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 crew to turn off the lights in the upper deck and so i continued looking at some of the stuff in the southern sky uh and that was fun. And they even had one of them even had a small telescope on board. And I didn't think that was possible, but you were able to, they looked at various objects. And when I, there was a lot of people up there, as I said, it was dark and it was relatively clear. And so we looked, I looked through the telescope and I was looking at the Southern Pleiades, which is a lovely cluster. Uh, I forget what constellation it is. It might be Vela. And so that was the vibe for the week. Uh, people, uh, talking uh, with some people traveled in groups and and uh, some people traveled uh, in pairs. I, I, one of the things that happened because we were from Canada, we met other Canadians before we left. Some of them I knew and some of them I'd never met. And uh, 
a guy named Stephen, I think you know him, Chris, was on board. He was from Yellowknife, and he managed to get a table for 12 for the dozen Canadians. Oh, that'd be uh, Stephen Bedingfield. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. yeah, he he was there, and he knew this was his 10th or 11th uh, eclipse, so he's a yep. veteran. And so there was... Uh, just after the eclipse, there was there was twelve of us at the table, and I managed to bring a Canadian flag. I don't know if you saw the picture, but I did. I saw the picture. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. and and so the twelve Canadians, and some of them I knew. Uh, one of them I'd known from Starfest uh, for decades. You know, Starfest is a, a yep. conference in Ontario for amateurs, and some of them I had never met and didn't know who they were, and others were. I think Ralph Ralph Chu is there. He's an expert on Ottawa. Yeah, he's pretty famous uh, solar eclipse observer out from Ontario. Yeah, that's right. And so that was sort of impromptu. But other groups were there, people wearing matching T-shirts and lanyards and all that stuff. So it was, uh, it was a great uh, experience uh, leading up to it. So the night before, it was, you know, we were told that it was going to be clear. There was zero chance of, or less than 1% chance that there would be problems. And that was a great relief. I don't know about you, Shane, but in, in uh, 2017, where I was, the weather was iffy. And it was an unpleasant night before uh, the eclipse. Yeah, no, I, I remember that quite quite a bit, Clark. We, In fact, my wife and I, so we we went together. And, and uh, even before we left, I was contemplating like should we even go because the weather forecast wasn't looking great but we thought let's just go and see what happens and yeah even the night before we went to wyoming uh so different uh you know different forecast there but it, it was still not looking great until pretty much the morning of and and then it turned out to be a really great experience yeah so we we, we were similar in fact uh, as i mentioned we were at a campground with with there was a uh, i mentioned a couple of people you know in that were with me in or at the same campground in Nebraska. There was dozens of people from Nova Scotia, your home province, mm. and there was quite there was quite a few from Ontario as well. But a lot of them, not a lot, but some of them said, "No, we're leaving for Wyoming. We're getting out of here." And the, some of the veterans did, and so leaving behind felt like it was a mistake. And um, like you, Shane, it. it worked out well it was clear and, and wonderful but it, it's the point of all of this was it was a big relief not having to worry about the weather the night before it's going to be good and keep in mind of course uh with all the experts running the, the sky and telescope tour they they if it had been a chancy weather they might have went to a plan b which would be maybe to sail out in the indian ocean so th that was a as I said, it was a re it was a relief not to have to worry about the weather. Um, so, on eclipse morning, the the, the totality was about eleven thirty, roughly, in the morning, and the the partial would start about ten o'clock. And so we went up, and that's the other thing I was worried about uh, was was what's deck space going to be like? Are we going to be really crammed in there and bumping elbows and stuff? And it was far better than I thought. There was lots of room. So my wife and I were walking around. The other thing I noticed was that there was a lot of tripods, a lot of cameras, but an awful lot of tripods. And I thought, well, 
on a cruise ship. I didn't think that made sense, but it, it, uh, people had brought them and set up early and uh, sort of stayed out of the way from the from the main from just from the decks and stuff. But we found ourselves in a forward deck that was no otherwise closed during the eclipse, and uh, there was a lot of room up there and had beautiful, wonderful views of the sun. Uh, but it was very windy and it was quite bad. And I suspect that a few people decided to leave the area because of the wind and just go into the more protected areas. But we stayed and and once the uh, partial phase started, the wind died down and I, I, quite a bit. And then as the uh, partial phase continued, it got better. So uh, parked near, near me was a family of four from uh, Melbourne. And they had two kids, as I said, there were a lot of kids in there. And I would guess about eight and 10, nine and 11, somewhere in there. And they, at some point at the halfway, I heard, I couldn't see it, but I heard that someone had a cheese grater. And this is an old trick where you use the cheese grater to show the shadows uh, of the partial, uh, you know, you get the little symmetrical crescent shaped uh, shadows. Mm -hmm. And they rushed and I saw the guy, he had a, as I said, the gentleman with his family, I said, you know, that old straw hat might work well for doing that. And uh, I got pictures of it. It's sensational. It worked really well. The, the straw hats, holes made hundreds of these little symmetrical uh, crescent shaped shadows of, of the, of the, of the sun. And as it got closer, the totality got closer. The, the crescents got thinner. It was quite a good tool to use. And uh, so I thought, well, the next time I'll either buy a straw hat in the dollar store, wherever I am, <laughs> or, or bring one with me. So, um, so one of the things as as darkness, it's, it gets darker and darker, and then you start to see some weird effects. Some of them you expect, some of them you don't. Um, it was quite different this time because I was I was in open water. There's a bit of land and a lot of a lot of ocean, and so that environment's quite different than my other eclipse, which was in a cornfield in Nebraska. Keep in mind it was August, so the corn was high. So so the, the environment's different, and it does I think help you see different things. And at one point, and I can't remember what order it happened, but. Um, I noticed that there was a tiny bit of, of sunlight reflecting off the water. And uh, on a normal sunny day, that's not unusual. But it was just one little spot. The rest didn't have it. And that was a bit weird. And I decided, I had assumed that because this, the sun was so, uh, the moon was covered so much of the sun, that the reflection that you normally see in the water wasn't happening. But perhaps in one direction where there was a wee bit less sun covered like a few miles away uh that that it, it was starting to show just a bit of a reflection that was a minor thing uh and didn't didn't really um it wasn't that fascinating but it was just something i noticed but then it started something that happened again because it was out in the water it's getting darker the sun's getting uh, more covered that there was a point where you realize there's no clouds uh and there's there's no glare. You don't need sunglasses, and it's a weird feeling because uh, 
you're expecting you, it's it just felt weird to to have brought this this cloudless sky so uh, without the glare and not only was there no glare the colors of the the landscape the water the, the green and the and the land was crisp and clean and clear and and I, it's hard to describe because I, I hadn't felt that before. And the only time you can really, it's not like it's a cloudy day. It's not like the sun's, there's a cloud in front of the sun and there's, there's no, it, it, and the, the rest of the sky is clear. It's, it's different and, and it's just weird. Um, and it was wonderful. It's a uh, very tranquil and, and soothing uh, because of the light and, and the lack of the glare and, and the, the color still sharp and everything. Um, and, a few minutes later, and this is was particularly fascinating to me, as as it gets darker. Um, this ha what happened in Nebraska was that it's it's getting uh, very close to totality, and the lights weird everywhere. It's dark, and in Nebraska, the the, the, the there's a they call it they described it as a, a steely color to everything. But because of the corn, the greens were vivid. And I think you guys are familiar with the uh, concept of the Purkinje effect. When you're in a dark sky, as we like to and when we're observing, I don't know if you've noticed this. When you're observing, you can't see color, but the green of the grass or the green of the trees does come out a little bit. It does. I, I have noticed. What's it called again? I, I guess. I, I, I It's named after a Czech scientist uh, from 200 years ago. It's per, I believe it's pronounced Perkinje, but there's, or maybe it, Perkinje, but it's actually pronounced Perkinje effect. And okay. it's the, it's the uh, difference between the rods and the cones and, the rods take over when it's low light and it, you lose color, but it's slightly better in the greens and blues, whereas you lose reds in particular. Huh. That's go ahead. I was just, I'm just, uh, yeah, I've noticed this. And okay. in fact, you know, when I was younger, I would notice very much like in bright nebulae, like the Orion Nebula or M8 or the Swan Nebula M17. Now they're they're more of a white color, but some of them still have a little bit of a green tint to them. But anyway, when I was younger, they were very like vividly green, like almost like a iridescent phosphorescent green. Yeah, yeah. so I'm guessing it's similar. And I was specifically talking about uh, the trees and the grass. It's yeah. dark, but you can detect the green color to it. Yeah, yeah. And and that is that effect called and and I don't know if most people are aware of this. I uh, you guys might be because you're amateur astronomers and you're out there in the dark and you're deliberately avoiding having your light having your eyes exposed to bright lights. Yeah. So when you're out there for two or three hours, yeah, you can see that you can sort of detect that the grass has a green color to it when when other things don't like the red, uh, you know, maybe the red car or something like that. Yeah. And that's a well. That's what that's called. But but in my first trip in Nebraska, it, it was on steroids. It wasn't subtle. It was profound. Yeah. And I thought, that's I, when after the eclipse, and my wife even mentioned it too. Like, years, look at the colors, and I said, yeah. Um, 
after it, I wondered what it was. I, and I didn't know that's what it was. And I thought, you know what, it would be neat to photograph this. You get, you get an expert, you get an advanced photographer who can see what he uh, needs to do, set the camera up. Because you got to work quick. You don't have five, ten minutes. You can't just sort of, well, I'll, I'll move over here and go, you know. And it turns out you can't photograph it because it's 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 in, it's it's in the uh, it's in the physiology of the eye, right? You can't photograph it. And so, so and, and then I learned that that's what it was. And there was, there was a video about it that explained it, and I think that makes sense. So the reason I mentioned that is because it was happening again uh, on the cruise ship. This weird, you know. Uh, there was somebody wearing a green T-shirt. It was happening again, but not as profound. And and uh, the one person said that he also in the United States had that uh, effect, but less so when in a different eclipse in South America. So there was something going on there. And that's not something I'd ever known it, uh, uh, happened. Uh, yeah, the light gets weird and the sky gets uh, different, but not like that. So once that ended, it's getting darker and, and we know the eclipse is coming. And I, I had binoculars and I, I used uh, solar filters during the partial phase uh, for those 10 by 42 binoculars. And during the partial phase, you could see sunspots and you could see it getting um, the moon, of course, taking covering more and more of the sun. But just a few minutes or a sec seconds now before totality, I could start to see the Bailey's beads a little bit. Not as much as I had expected, but they were there. And of course, there's a lot of other stuff going on. Um, and so it was time to, uh, as totality approach, to uh, take the um, filters off the binoculars and take the filters off the camera. Now, uh, just in the seconds before totality started but so what happens with people regardless of whether they're it's their 10th eclipse or their first they they know it's coming because you hear the whoops and the screams and then the diamond ring shows up and everybody just uh there's i've got a couple of videos of it uh, we just got cameras the video the phones i mounted them on a on a small little tripod about you know those six inch with the wiry arms. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what they're called. Just miniature tripods. And and so I got the video of, of people reacting to it. And uh, the diamond ring comes and then you hear some expletives and it's just expletives. And then it's just uh, hollering and whoop and cheering and all that stuff. And the oh my gods and the holy cows. And it's and what happened in, in this one in Australia was I both my wife and I were stunned at how bright the corona was. It was just exceptionally bright. And we thought, well, yeah, it makes for a, a deeper contrast between the black hole of the sun or the black hole of the, the moon covering the sun and the bright corona. And I wondered why that was. Why was this one brighter? Uh, there may be reasons for it, but the corona does change. Maybe it was just brighter that day. The moon... It was only a one-minute eclipse, so it barely covered the sun. Maybe that was it. But more likely, it was because the conditions were excellent. It was a very clear day, and we're in the Indian Ocean. Winds come from the west, and there's nothing. There's no land for thousands of miles or thousands of kilometers. 
have to go to Africa. So th- there was no pollution in the air. And that might have made a difference in in, in um, getting that corona very bright. Now, you mentioned Stephen. He had said that it was of the 11, either the first or second brightest that corona he had seen. So it's not just me. And this was quite different than from uh, my first eclipse, which might have had a bit of a hazy sky. It was beautiful, of course, but not as bright. Um, so now you got, we know we have about 60 seconds of totality. And so I quickly look, take my binoculars and look at the prominences. I got a sense that there might be something there naked eye. It was a bit, and, and to be honest, I, I don't even remember what I saw through the binoculars. I guess I just gave myself a five second look and moved on to the next thing. And it, it, it happened so quick. And then, um, so it, it seems uh, with all the experience I have in observing that that was, it's an odd thing to say, yes, there was prominences, but I couldn't describe them too well to. And so you're trying to look at, you can't stop looking at this gaping black hole in the sky and the brightness, but the colors around the sky are fantastic too. So you allow yourself a few seconds to, to glance around. In the meantime, the people near you are, are reacting similarly. Um, some of them taking pictures, some of them looking and pointing and others kind of, there's too much to absorb and you're trying to uh, see everything. Um, and then uh, I would say at the halfway point, people start to quiet down a little bit. Uh, you see this in other eclipse videos where the, the crowd roars and screams and then they settle down. And I think part of it is that uh, they're they're starting to realize this is but we have to sink this in. This is uh, like an unearthly experience. Uh, and, and they sort of contemplate it a little bit. But uh, again, it's only a few seconds because, uh, you know, they start realizing that it's going to be over soon. And then when it ends, you get the whoops again. The, 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 <clears throat> the diamond ring is obviously... Uh, people re- realize that it's over, even if, uh, whether it's your first one or not. And then the whoops and cheers come again. But you would think that you could start the same process backwards. You know what I mean? These, all those things I was telling you that I was witnessing before totality, but it it doesn't work that way. And part of it might be that you're so pumped up that you saw that everything else that happens, we've already seen it. Yes, it's neat. But your your adrenaline and your emotions running wild. But I think also that because the, the that bright uh, diamond ring and then it gets to an arc destroys your night vision, uh, and it's you don't see it's it you don't see the same uh, phenomena that you did bef- as a totality approached, and so it sort of loses its its magic that way. But you're, again, you're, you're just on adrenaline, so excited about what you saw, and you got family hugging and, you know, going wild, you know, talking to each other and stuff. But you can still do these things with the, uh, with the shadows and the crescents, and you can still see the planets. Mm-hmm. And so that goes on. But there really is, uh, uh, it's, the, it's emotionally draining, and, and it's the, the after totality is very different than the before. Um, a couple other things that 
I can say before I uh, wrap up, that's this part is uh, there, there's there's two things that I've always wanted to see. And one of them I should have is, is the, sh- the shadow of the moon coming towards you uh, just as to- just before totality and the shadow leaving as it, as it, as it ends moving away from you. And I haven't seen it. And I was up, I was on the 14th deck. I was up high. I, I presumably was in an excellent position to see it. And I didn't, I didn't see it in Nebraska either. And I don't know if that was just bad luck or, or looking at the wrong time or looking, looking at the, had the wrong place at the wrong time. And so that was disappointing. Um, I've read some of these old scientific expeditions in the 1800s where scientists are doing their work and and they see it and they mention, look at the shadow, look at the shadows. But while they're they're supposed to be doing things during the eclipse and they have to, they they explain how difficult it is to keep your eye on the clocks and keep your eye on, on changing the film when all of this stuff's going on and, they say it's a, it's an extreme challenge doing that. Um, the other one uh, that I we wanted to see was something called the shadow bands, and I don't fully understand it, but it's supposed to be these uh, uh, dark bands and white bands fl- flashing uh, on on a white background. Do you know anything about that, Shane, from your experience? You know I'm no, I'm, I'm I'm not familiar with that phenomenon. Okay, um, it's called shadow bands, and it's it's I believe it's rare, and, and it's it, I also think it's a fairly complicated phenomenon. But you get these these uh, these bands of dark, bright dark bright lines, and they they have sign a flutter around. Um, I didn't see that. I think yeah, what I think you need is a, a large white uh, background of some sort to see it, but. Um, I certainly I didn't expect to see that. I know that's very unusual. So, so despite my uh, attempts, there's still some things I haven't seen, and and there's other things that I saw that completely surprised me. You know, you mentioned something uh, a little bit earlier, Clark, about you know how fleeting it is, and um, you know, I, I when I saw my well, the only eclipse that I've seen, um, I, you know, I, I knew how long totality would last. <clears throat> But it still didn't really register with me because I think I'm used to seeing how how apparent the motion of the moon is in terms of you know it transiting the sky and it seems slow right it yeah. it takes hours to go you know from one horizon to the other so I just I don't know incorrectly assumed I would have more time and or just that moment of totality goes by so fast and there's so many things that you know you you could see like the the moving shadow, the, the beads, the, the prominences, like there's so many things to try to take in during an eclipse. It's kind of challenging. And then if you layer in, uh, wanting to photograph it and setting up your camera for all of that stuff, yeah. it can yeah. become overwhelming. Yeah. And, and in one of the talks, I think they mentioned there was talks about the eclipse. Uh, they did one specifically on photography and you know, the, what settings to put your camera and mm-hmm. all that stuff. Now, I think I mentioned my attempts at photography failed miserably. Um, I was hand-holding it. I didn't have a tripod, and, but I, 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 they were all grossly overexposed. And um, I didn't really, I mean, you can see the red prominences and you can see all that stuff, but it was, it was brutal. And I had much more success in, in using the same camera, in fact, in Nebraska. Uh, they, they, they were quite good. I was pleased with them anyways. Um and and during one of the talks, they tell you you've got a minute 
the urge you don't try to photograph it. Mm-hmm. And that's a little bit like kid, like telling a kid, don't eat that delicious cookie. You know what I mean? <laughs> it, um, you, 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 most, uh, some people were trying and, and a, a lot of people had their, their smartphones and, and trying to take photographs. Um, and it, so mine were unsuccessful. And I mentioned, uh, uh, Brad Espinet. He was, he did take photographs and his, he, he took it from the ship. He was on the ship, of course. So he had, and it made a pod. He it was put on a pod a few days later. So there's a total solar eclipse on a pod, which is the, the, uh, ast- astronomy picture of the day put up by, sponsored by NASA, I believe. Every day there's a picture and then they have his shot from the aboard the ship and it's stunning. It's fantastic. Uh, so, so the people that were telling you don't photograph it were photographing. Um, but it's a, it, it's, it's hard not to, uh, I'm, I'm not, a, I wouldn't call myself an astrophotographer. I love doing night shots with the moon and planets and stuff like that. Um, and it, you think it only takes a few seconds, but it really did. In my case, I didn't get satisfactory results. One, and, and those are several seconds that I lost. Uh, as, as Shane, you know, I, I should have been doing other things. <laughs> um, and so my wife like, well, you know, all these wonderful pictures, but the pictures don't describe what you see. It can't. And I guess yeah. because the human eye is such great dynamic range and all that stuff. Um, you, you can't say, well, the sky's like, you might say, well, the sky's during an eclipse is, is like sunset in all directions. And well, it, that doesn't describe it right either. There, and there's only one choice and that's to witness it. Um, and I think a lot of the, the, you start conversing with some of the people you met before the eclipse and you see them afterwards and it's just a different game like uh, they were so amazed and stunned and so forth um so i think for for some people uh, I, I i for a lot of people i don't think it's uh right to say that it changes their lives but it's an extraordinary experience and they'll never forget it and for some they do become eclipse chasers be, uh, once they see one and of course uh you're not always going to see, you can't see all of them because of the remoteness and so forth. I think if you're patient enough and you're healthy enough, uh, young enough, young being young helps, gives you more time. Uh, and you have uh, some financial means and, and, you know, you don't have family issues like weddings and you know, you, you, your careers and all that stuff. You, if the good news is, is that you, you, there's a good chance you can see one if you, if you, uh, if you commit to it, there's a good chance that you can see another one. Yeah, it, it's easily the, one of the most incredible things I've ever experienced in my lifetime. Um, and, and probably one of the most beautiful things, I, or probably the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Um, and words really can't describe it. It, it was truly a moving moment. Um, my wife, who is not really that interested in looking through the telescope. Well, she will look at Saturn occasionally or the moon, but uh, is often not super impressed with other things that I'll show her, Um, you know, came to the eclipse. And I don't think she had high expectations, but she was extremely moved and, and, and really, you know, the, the expectations she had were absolutely shattered. And, um, you know, it, 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 we became eclipse chasers in that moment. And, you know, Clark, you, you talked about just, uh, 
you know, getting to Australia, getting onto the boat, like you went through an awful lot just to have 60 seconds of totality. <laughs> and yeah. I think that speaks to how moving it is because people then invest that kind of effort and time and money into making, you know, it happen again for future eclipses. Well, yeah. And, and to be, to be fair, uh, you know, we, we were in Sydney and Brisbane places we wanted to go and doing, um, uh, the outback. And, 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 uh, so it wasn't just the eclipse, uh, that was the icing on the cake. That was the ultimate. I don't think I would have done it for, for a week. I'm going to fly to Brisbane and do the trip right. and fly home. Yeah, um, yeah. If that's significant expense, you might as well do it. So it does take you to places. I've heard others say it. It, it takes you to places tourists don't normally go. Um, and I remember one fellow uh, saying, um, one eclipse chaser, he said, he was in Turkey. And I guess the locals said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, we're here to see the eclipse. And then because they said, what are you doing here? Because we don't normally see tourists, that kind of conversation. And when the local saw the eclipse, he said, okay, I get it. Um, and so it's a good excuse to to try and see uh, parts of the world that you're never going to see. But you do plan other things around it. I noticed that a, a lot of veteran eclipse chasers, uh, before they... Uh, Eclipse chased were loved to travel. They're, and they're, that's a theme I see. They they already love to travel. If you hate traveling, you're probably not going to go to the Antarctica or the ocean to see an eclipse. So there are some things that are common among those that do chase it. Yeah, yeah, great points. Um, especially with a longer trip like that, you, you know, you, you, you do make it a, a bit of a vacation and it's more than just the eclipse, um, for sure. Um, uh, I guess the next one is what, April 8th, 2024, April 8th, 2024. And I can, I can almost see it from where I grew up. I just got to travel uh, about an hour and a half North of where I grew up. I can see it in the Maritimes in Canada. Yeah, I, I've been looking at the cloud forecasts for um, uh, like Sherbrooke, Quebec is uh, another spot of totality. And uh, that time of year, the, the cloud forecast is not super favorable, <laughs> unfortunately, for for those parts of Canada. Um, so I'm a little torn right now about my my plans for that one. You can go down yeah. to the States, I think. Is I was just looking here on a map uh, just yep. as we were chatting. Yeah, it goes, it starts, well, it, it, you know, Mexico has an awful lot of opportunity and then it goes through Texas and a number of other states. Um, between Canada and the U.S., Texas has, I think, some of the better, I guess, odds or better forecast or probability for clear skies. Yeah, it goes through uh, Indianapolis, goes just outside of Little Rock, Arkansas, Denver. No, wait, not Denver. <laughs> like looking, it's been a long day. Yeah, um, uh, Dallas. Yeah, Dallas, Texas is what I meant. Parts of Mexico have excellent skies. Parts of Mexico have excellent sky statistics as well. Yeah. Is I'm I'm literally just an hour from the center line, a little more drive that is. And uh, I thought about Niagara Falls and how spectacular that would be, mm. um, but it's going to likely be uh, chaos with travelers and, and traffic. Oh, for yeah. sure. A magnificent place to watch it. So you're just going to go to Southern Ontario, then I would imagine like, uh, what's it called? Peely Island. That'd be good. I think yeah. So. And if 
we just, in fact, just today I booked a place in in Texas. That uh, was uh, inexpensive in this. Oh. The, the reason is I'll check the forecast and if it's bad up in Ontario, we'll drive. Um, if it's great, then I, I literally just have to, to wake up early in the morning and drive a couple hours, fight some traffic and I got it. it and it's, it's a nice one. It's going to be three and a half, four minutes up that way and yeah. closer to four and a half down south. Which is incredible. Like that is an incredible amount of time of totality. Um, you know, you just mentioned 60, what was it? 62 seconds, um, on, on the ship. So yeah, three or four minutes would be amazing. That's enough time to drink a beer. Well, <laughs> I said that to a, one of the fellows that had seen five minutes and Ralph too, and, and they've been the longer ones. And I said, yeah, you could almost order a beer and <laughs> eat, a hot, eat a hot dog and then and they, they knew it was joking of course they said no 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 you can't trust me it's yeah it, even six minutes isn't long enough well yeah i gotta try to i'm hoping maybe i can i might just see it from canada just you know make make a bit yeah. of a trip out of it so yeah. yeah that's very cool and then the one thing i wanted to ask you about on this one clark is this eclipse that you saw on April 20th, this was a hybrid eclipse. And yeah. so at the start, it was annular. At the end, it was annular. But you were in the totality section of it. Um, I didn't know if if that impacted the observation or maybe that's because that, that's what made it like a shorter eclipse of sorts. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, yeah, it would be sh- shorter because of that. Uh, if you would think somewhere along the path, it, it's would have been one second or zero. And that would have been an extraordinary experience. Like just the, between the part where it's annular and the part it's total, there's there's a wee area where it would just be, oh, there's a diamond ring, oh, it's dark, and then it's gone. You know, they, <laughs> but uh, I, I would have much, that would be neat to see, but I think I'd rather have the one minute. So we were, I think the maximum a little north of there uh, was about a minute and 15 seconds. Okay. And then it started to diminish after that. Nice. Oh, wow. That is uh, sort of like so inspiring to hear all that. Yeah. I, I'm pretty excited to try to get out and take a look at one, uh, hopefully next year, like fingers fingers crossed. Yeah. Um, I, I urge all listeners, if they're thinking about it, to do it. Again, not everyone can, but I, I remember seeing one on television when I was in high school. I was, that was the one that was a uh, totality in Winnipeg in 70, 1979. I had known what eclipses were because that was my interest. Um, but I said to myself, it's like that uh, scene on Gone with the Wind, as God is my witness, I'm <laughs> going to see one of these. And it took a lot longer than I would have thought. It was just a few years ago. So it's a 30 or 40, 30 years, at least 35 years before I saw one. Shane, do you have any plans to try to capture this next one? Um, nothing. I haven't booked anything yet. Um, I might have to go solo. My wife uh, just has some work commitments around that time that probably will prevent her from traveling. So um, I, I started to look at hotels actually this past week. And what is surprising to me, and you know, hopefully the hotel owners don't hear this, but uh, hotel prices aren't that bad. Like when we went to Wyoming, uh, we, I think we got just a little bit ahead of the, you know, the buzz and, and the attention that the eclipse got there and, and our hotel room wasn't outrageously priced, 
but you know, probably within about six months of the eclipse, hotel rooms were exceptionally expensive, pretty much anywhere near like Casper, Wyoming, which was, um, you know, right on the path of totality. And, uh, you know, my point here is, is at least where I was looking in Sherbrooke, Montreal, hotel rooms were not too crazy yet. So if anybody is thinking of the eclipse, get your hotels while you can, uh, or accommodations, because they will just probably get more expensive as we get closer to that time frame. Yeah. I, I, I mentioned, I just booked one today has a plan B and, and yeah, there's, there's some places that are, uh, like 900 or a thousand dollars a day. Yeah. yeah, so that's happening in some parts uh, in some certain states in the United States. And I just, it, it'll, you're right, Shane, it's going it, to, the sooner the better, I think, for mm-hmm. booking a place. We ended up, when we went to Wyoming, we stayed in Sheridan, which I think is a, was it a two hour drive outside of Casper? And we ended up watching it, watching the eclipse in Casper. Um, but yeah, rooms were like 750 to 1000 us dollars a night in Casper. And I just thought that's nuts. <laughs> you know, we'll stay in Sheridan and spend $150 a night. That's what I'm seeing now. As I said, there's, you have to start digging to find places that, that are still reasonable. Well, Clark, do you have anything else to add to this episode? Thanks so much for joining us. It was fascinating. Yeah, thanks. I, I I suspect I have missed points, but but uh, it, that's part of the that, that's part of the reality. That there's so much going on that 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 uh, you forget stuff, or uh, you know, maybe if I see a third one, I say, oh yeah, I, I, I forgot I saw that that kind of thing. As I said, the most striking thing was is that I, I looked at the prominences with my binoculars, and I genuinely can't describe them because I just got too much going on. And that, that's, that was the weirdest thing. I think that, like, because I do a lot, a lot of observing, and, you, know, you, you generally remember those kinds of details. Yeah. Nice. Well, thanks so much for that. Shane, do you have anything to add? Just want to say thanks, Clark. I uh, really enjoy you sharing uh, your experience of this eclipse. And uh, yeah, it's very motivational. I, I, you know, I'm excited for the April one, and I, I hope we all have an opportunity to observe it. Yeah, definitely. Thanks. I, I enjoyed their chat. Great. Well, thanks, Clark. Thanks, yeah. everybody, for listening. Please share the show with other stargazers you know and email us your observing reports to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>